Well, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, let me inform you that we hit the pause button on our First King series. Uh, we we uh, will come back to it at some point in the not too distant future, but for the time being, we will spend the next few weeks in 1 Timothy. Uh, so we're looking this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Let's hear God's word together. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are prone to become indifferent and hard-hearted toward the great and glorious truths of our faith, the truth of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, as today we meditate on your goodness, as revealed especially to the Apostle Paul, we would be freshly softened by your love and mercy. Uh, grant us that we would rejoice in you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Heavenly Father, if there are any in our midst this morning who do not know Jesus, your Son, as their Savior, we pray that you would use your truth to draw them to yourself. We pray that not one would leave here today uh, having not been reconciled to you, that all would rejoice in the abundance of grace that you've given us through Jesus. Bless, Lord, the proclamation of the word. Use it to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. Build us up and glorify your name. Amen. Uh, Tim Keller observed, it's very, one of his better known quotes, we are more sinful and flawed that we, than we dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. In other words, the truth about you is way worse than you might think, but more significantly, the truth about the goodness of God is deeper, richer, better than you might have hoped. And it's these twin truths, these two reality, uh, realities, the depth of our rebellion and sin and the goodness of God and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ towards sinners that we see especially clearly in today's passage. Uh, the Apostle Paul who penned this letter looks especially at his own life, his own conversion, his own calling to ministry uh, as a lens for, for seeing the grace of God and, and seeing how that grace is applicable to others. So it's, it's somewhat biographical. Paul is speaking about himself, but he's speaking about himself to help us more clearly understand the goodness, the mercy, and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, if you weren't with us last week, let me remind you, First Timothy was written by Paul to his protege, to his student, his disciple, Timothy. Uh, this letter was written to help Timothy know how to c- lead the church in Ephesus, probably, uh, to lead the church in Ephesus, how to order it properly according to God's blueprint. And he's also called uh, to challenge false teaching, as we'll know also in verse 18, uh, to correct false teaching, to tell certain individuals to knock it off, and to contend for the truth of the gospel. Uh, as we look at our passage this morning, we'll note three things. Number one, we'll see Christ's power to save the worst of sinners. Christ's power to save the worst of sinners, so there's hope for all of us today. Uh, Christ's patience to save the worst of sinners. Christ's patience to save the worst of sinners. And finally, our response to those realities. Paul begins in verse 12 by thanking Jesus. But before he gets to the reason he gives thanks, he identifies Jesus as the one who has given me strength, Christ Jesus. This doesn't just refer to strength in general, this refers especially to empowerment for ministry that Paul received when he was converted. Uh, Remember for Paul, conversion and calling to the ministry co-occurred. He was both reconciled to Jesus and to God and called to be an apostle at the same time. And in his conversion, there was an impartation of strength that he might be faithful as an apostle. That's the strength in view as the context makes clear. Then Paul goes on to describe why he's thankful, and he says, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus looked at Paul and said, there's a man who is trustworthy and faithful, and now I'm going to call him to be an apostle. Uh, We know that can't be the case because Paul's, as I I said, his conversion and calling to be an apostle co-occurred. Prior to his being called to be an apostle, he was, as he says, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a sinner. So it's not that Jesus looked at him and said, this guy has a lot of potential, I'm going to make him an apostle. The idea is that Jesus strengthened him, imparted strength that he would be a faithful apostle. So this uh, verdict that Jesus renders about Paul, he deems him faithful not because of what he is in himself and what he is inherently, but because Jesus has given him strength to be a faithful apostle. And so Jesus' declaration about Paul is grounded in the strength that Jesus imparts to him. It is for that reason that Jesus considers him faithful and appoints him to his service, to the work of building up the church and proclaiming the gospel to outsiders and especially Gentiles. And then in verse 13, he contrasts this high calling that he receives from Jesus with his former way of life. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. A blasphemer is someone who uh, speaks carelessly and contemptuously, especially about God. In what sense, though, was Paul a blasphemer since he would have been a zealous, pious, outwardly pious Jew? He wouldn't have blasphemed the God of the Old Testament, God the Father. So how is it that he's a blasphemer? And the answer is he's a blasphemer because he denied that Jesus Christ was God's appointed king, the Messiah. He denied that he was the eternal son of God, become flesh to rescue us from our sins. He was a blasphemer, especially because of the contempt with which he treated the son of God. And so by implication, this is an indirect way we can see the deity of Jesus, right? If he's a blasphemer because of the contemptuous way that he treated Jesus, then that implies that Jesus is divine. But he's a blasphemer, Uh, He is a persecutor of the church. We can read all about this in the book of Acts. Uh, He used every tool in his arsenal to pulverize this new movement that began in Jerusalem. 
sought to throw God's people into jail, used everything that he could to oppose this movement, to oppose Christ and his church. Uh, That expression, insolent opponent, captures his posture towards Jesus and the church. It's a combination of malice and arrogance. There was a deeply rooted hostility toward Christians, towards Jesus. And along with that hostility, there was a contempt and arrogance. This is who Paul was. Persecutor, blasphemer, insolent opponent. But then Jesus shows up, and through the power of Jesus Christ, his life is redirected. And he goes from being a persecutor of the church to a faithful servant of the church. Notice the difference that the intervention of Jesus Christ makes in his life. His trajectory is radically reoriented. And notice why he receives mercy, verse 13b. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, we shouldn't think that Paul is there excusing his sin or diminishing it or diluting it. Yeah, I sinned, but it wasn't that bad because I was ignorant. That's not what Paul is saying. Uh, He will go on to say of himself that he was the foremost of sinners. He's in the worst category conceivable, according to his own estimation. Uh, So it's not that his sin wasn't that bad. What is he saying? I think what's in view is that uh, thread of New Testament teaching uh, that says that those who have received clarity, spiritual clarity to a degree that others don't enjoy about the things of God and still repudiate the truth, they are committing a uniquely heinous, even unpardonable sin. So for example, in Mark chapter three, uh, Jesus speaks of those who see God's power manifest in his ministry. They see clearly that this is the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. But instead of attributing the ministry of Jesus to God, they attribute the work of Jesus to Satan. So these are people who see clearly this is the work of God, but they hate what they see, and instead of submitting to it, they repudiate it and oppose it. Those whose eyes are open are sinning, Jesus says, against the Holy Spirit, describing their sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's a similar sort of sin in Hebrews 6, where the individual, individuals there are described as those who have been enlightened, those who have experienced the powers of the age to come. So they've experienced a unique clarity and illumination about who Jesus is, but then they reject that truth and walk away from Jesus. Those in that category are in a uniquely heinous uh, category. To see the truth, to be enlightened to a degree and to walk away is to put yourself perhaps beyond mercy. Not because God wouldn't forgive you, but because the desire to turn is no longer there. And so what I believe Paul is saying is that he sinned grievously, he was the foremost of sinners, but he wasn't that kind of sinner. And perhaps he's contrasting himself with the false teachers who may have done exactly that. They, they saw the truth, they saw who Jesus was, and they repudiated it and walked away. So perhaps there's an implicit comparison. Again, not, Paul is not minimizing the extent of his sin. And then in verse 14, he goes back to describing what Jesus had done for him when he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, poured out in abundance, like when you uh, over-eagerly pour coffee into your mug in the morning and it spills over and runs down. That's the, the grace of God. 
flooding Paul's life. And with this flood of grace came faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He is the fountainhead of our faith and love. Why do we believe? Those of you who believe this morning, why do you believe? Is it because of some intrinsic Uh, spiritual insight or ability? No, it's because Jesus has imparted to you the gift of faith. Our ability to believe is gift, as is love. We saw last week that one sure indicator that you're real and that your faith is genuine is you love God's people. Where there is genuine faith, there will also be love for God's people, and Jesus is the source of these. There's a supernatural love that Jesus imparts to his people just as he imparts faith. And where there are genuine believers, there will be love. So consider what, Paul did, what Jesus did for Paul. He was unbelieving, hated Jesus, hated the church, but through Jesus came to trust in Jesus as his savior. There was hatred and malice in his heart, but through Jesus he came to love Jesus and the church. He was a persecutor of the church, but through Jesus he became a faithful servant of the church. That which he tried once to destroy, by the grace of Jesus, he now tries to build. The power of Jesus to transform life is greater than even the most deeply entrenched sins. Jesus is able to take the most deformed, broken life and bring healing and renewal to it. He's able to take the broken pieces of our lives and put them back together. His power to convert and transform is greater than even our sin. In uh, Ian Murray's biography of the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he shares this anecdote about uh, Lloyd-Jones's ministry. He's describing the way different people in town were converted. He describes the way a spiritist medium, someone engaged in the occult, someone who's engaged in kind of interacting with spirits, something scripture thoroughly prohibits and is wicked. He talks about how this woman came to faith. Uh, Every Sunday evening, this spiritist, this medium, would would conduct some sort of gathering that that she would lead, and she would be paid handsomely for her uh, wicked services. Uh, Made a lot of money from this. But one, one Sunday evening, she was ill and couldn't do what she normally did, and she saw people going to church. She, she said, I'll go there too. And she went into church, and she heard the gospel proclaimed by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus transformed this woman. She turned from her occult activities, and she began to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Turned away from her lucrative but wicked trade and began to walk in obedience. And th- this is what she wrote to Lloyd-Jones. The moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a supernatural power. I was conscious of the same sort of supernatural power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings. But there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word, reached out and transformed this woman, redirected her life from dabbling in dirt, as Lewis puts it, to following Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, uh, in his memoirs, describes, he's reflecting on old revivals that took place under Whitfield's ministry, Wesley's ministry, and he observes how many times people would show up to create disturbances at these meetings. 
and yet it was Jesus who would disturb them uh, and bring them to saving faith. Here's how he describes it. Others came to create disturbances, but a disturbance was created in their hearts which could never be quelled till they came to Jesus and found peace in him. The history of the church is studded with remarkable conversions of persons who did not wish to be converted, who were not looking for grace, but were even opposed to it, and yet, by the interposing arm of eternal mercy, were struck down and transformed into earnest and devoted followers of the Lamb. You see it with Paul, most notably in Scripture, but with many others as well. Is that how you see Jesus, who is now reigning at the right hand of God? as powerful and gracious and more than able to reverse the sinful trajectory of even the worst life? Do do you expect that Jesus will intervene in the lives of unbelieving neighbors, friends, and colleagues, and family members? Not just that he can do it, but that's what he does. He changes the lives of, of broken people. He brings healing. He brings conversion and transformation. Do you believe that he does that? I mean, so often when we look at the world, what are we impressed by? How sinful people are, how wretched they are. We kind of maybe mumble a prayer or two for them, but we, in our hearts, really feel like eh, this, this person's going to keep going this way. This is the way they've always been. This is the way they are. This is the way they'll keep going. Maybe it, it's probable that it, everybody has at least one, maybe more, of these kinds of individuals in your life. You've talked to them. You've prayed for them. You've tried to engage them. And there might even be times where you feel like, oh, man, something's getting through, and no, and the years go by. And, and there's, a, what, there's a tendency in our unbelief to say, ah, he'll always be that way. But when you see the power of Jesus to convert and transform, the response to that is we will be praying continuously and with confidence about these people. Jesus saves sinners. We don't lose heart. We don't accept the status quo. We expect that there will be an intrusion of grace into these lives, just as there was an intrusion of grace into Paul's life. Is that how you pray for the non-Christians in your life? Do you have that kind of boldness in your witness to them? Jesus is reigning, drawing impossible cases, hard-hearted sinners to himself and renewing their life. And and is there a confidence in in the way that you approach Jesus on behalf of unbelievers? So what we see then in Paul's life is the power of Jesus to convert the most hard-hearted of sinners. But secondly, we see the patience of Jesus, his perfect patience that leads to repentance. Paul goes on to describe this in verse 15 and following. He writes, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You can count on what I'm about to say. You can build your life on this. Now listen carefully. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his purpose. That was his mission. Now, he may well be including this statement uh, because he's indirectly correcting false teaching that, again, we, we've talked about and is in the background here. But he says to Timothy, you, you need to understand and believe that the mission of the Son of God was to save sinners. He didn't come into the world for righteous people who have it together. He didn't come into the world for respectable sinners, you know, sinners but who have not quite fallen uh, to to the level and depth that others have fallen to. No, no, when Paul says that he came into the world to save sinners, our understanding of what sinners involves is uh, clarified by verses 8 and 11 previously. There he talks about uh, murderers, those who kidnap, the sexually immoral, those who are contemptuous of their parents, 
uh, and so on. Jesus came into the world for these sorts of people. That's what Jesus says about himself in Mark. Mark 2, 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to scrape the bottom of the barrel. I came for the very worst. How do we know? Because Paul says as much. Uh, he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. There is no sin so heinous that it needs to separate you from God. There is forgiveness for all of it, regardless of how low you have sunk. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Your sins don't need to keep you from salvation in a relationship with God. But here's the great paradox. Your righteousness, your good deeds might. What? The terrible things you've done can be pardoned. But the thing about good deeds is that they can cause you to place your trust where? In yourself rather than in Jesus. Uh, all of the good things that you have, maybe you're a very generous, large-hearted person, maybe uh, sacrificial service comes in some ways naturally to you, maybe you're a very disciplined, organized person, uh, these are all in themselves good things, but these assets that you have become liabilities, spiritual liabilities, when they distort your own self-perception, and you begin to think of yourself as a pretty good person. Maybe I need forgiveness here and there, but basically I'm all right, I have something to offer God. That's the trouble with being a good person. It's not goodness as such. It's the way that our perceived goodness distorts our perception of ourselves and our need for grace. If you want salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, what is the first thing you need to do? Recognize that you need it. If Jesus came into the world to save sinners, then you are called to recognize yourself as a sinner, as morally bankrupt, having nothing to offer God, and completely dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. It's only when you hit that place where you abandon any sense of your own self-righteousness before God and understand that you're a desperate sinner and cling entirely to Christ, that's when you're seeing yourself clearly and the Savior clearly. What does the, the hymn say? Uh, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. There's a posture of total humility before Christ in a sense that I have nothing to offer and I'm banking on Jesus to do everything that needs to be done for me to be reconciled to God. One Puritan author put it somewhat like this. He said, I have made a heap of my good works and my bad works and I have fled them both to Christ. In other words, I turn from my sins and find forgiveness in Jesus. Even those good things I might be tempted to trust in, I leave those behind me, and I rest in Jesus alone for my salvation. Paul goes on to say that he is the foremost of sinners, and therefore there is hope for all of us who are here today. And what does he mean by foremost? Is that an absolute statement that he is the absolute worst person ever? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, one possibility when he says that is, it, do you know when the Spirit convicts you 
and you're aware of your guilt and how terrible you are, you see like fresh evil in your heart that you didn't know was there. At that moment, when you look at the world, no, no one is as sinful as you are, right? You, you are the world's worst sinner. So perhaps there's an element of that, just a deep recognition of how sinful he is. But I think more fundamentally than that, when Paul says that he's the world's worst sinner, the foremost sinner, what he's saying is he is in the category of the worst sinners. Those who are enemies of God and his people. Those who actively oppose the purpose of God in the world. Remember, he was a persecutor. In that sense, he is foremost. Paul's life was dedicated to destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Worst of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason. Why? That in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus saved me as the worst, so it would be clear to everybody there is hope for you. Patience here refers to the fact that Jesus didn't wipe him out. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor. Uh, He deserved the judgment of God, and yet Jesus didn't judge Paul or destroy Paul. He was patient with him, and when the time had ripened, he gave Paul repentance and faith. His patience led him to salvation. He waited till the moment came when his mercy swept Paul up and brought him to himself. And if there is hope for Paul, if there's that kind of patience and mercy in Jesus, then there is hope for us that there's that kind of mercy and patience in Jesus Christ. However far down you have gone, however great your sin is, there is today forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That is a sweet, sweet truth, isn't it? However deep you've gone, the grace of God goes deeper still. Uh, Many years ago, I went to a Desiring God conference, and uh, one of the keynote speakers was uh, Matt Chandler. And uh, this was, I believe, before I was even a pastor, if I'm not mistaken. Decades. Um, and uh, I remember give this great talk, and he talked about an experience that he had in college. Uh, he and some of his friends uh, were close with an unbelieving single mom. And uh, they wanted, obviously, being good friends, they wanted her to know Jesus, so they invited her to a, some sort of church function. And the pastor uh, spoke on sexual purity. And at the beginning of his talk, he takes this rose and he smells it, And he says, I want you to take this rose and circulate it and smell it and handle it. And he gives his talk, and at the end of it, uh, the rose makes its way back to him. It's taken up to the pastor by a boy, and at that point, it's broken. I guess some of the petals had fallen off. It's the miserable-looking rose. He held it up, and he said, see, who wants this? And you get what he's saying. Who wants this? And the idea is no one. And then Chandler describes... Uh, how there was a surge of anger in his heart. And he said to himself, Jesus wants that rose. What other people may turn, you know, turn from, turn their nose at, Jesus wants those people. As I said, the grace of God scrapes the bottom of the barrel. However far down you have gone, however much others may not want you, Jesus wants you. As there was hope for Paul, there is hope for you. This morning, you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
This text tells us that the, the Savior's arms are wide open to you this morning, and you need do nothing more than recognize how morally bankrupt you are, recognize that you can't do it, but that the Son of God has done it. Through his sin-bearing death and resurrection, you have everything you need to be forgiven today and reconciled to God. Trust in him. In Paul's life, we see his perfect patience with sinners. Now, when we see the power of Jesus to convert and transform, his mercy and patience towards us, what should our response be? Verse 17 shows us. That was a half rhetorical question. I was curious to see. Was there? We'll say it's rhetorical. Verse 17. Notice this expression of worship and adoration. To the king of ages, which is a way of describing God as eternal. And the reference here is probably to God the Father, quite possibly to Jesus. I mean, he's been talking about Jesus up to this point, possibly Jesus. But his heart overflows with adoration to the king of ages, the eternal king. God has no beginning. All creatures have a beginning. They, we derive and they derive their life from God. We are made. But he always was and is. He has fullness of life in himself. And all other things derive their life from him. God does not need to go outside of himself for abundant life. He has it and shares it with us. God is eternal, king of ages, immortal. His life, unlike ours, never fades diminishes, we grow old and die, we're mortal, we get wrinkles, the hair falls, our vitality is sapped by age, the joints begin to ache, right? We fade, but not God. His life is unchanging, always glorious, immortal. God is invisible, can't be seen with the senses. We see him as it were by faith. We see him through creation, but we don't see him with the senses. And that speaks to the hiddenness or transcendence of God. We rejoice in the fact that he draws near to us in Jesus, but we also affirm that he's high above us, that there are depths to God that we can't fathom, and we don't know him fully. We know him truly, but not fully. God is majestic, high, exalted. And that God sent Jesus for us. And therefore, to the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's fitting after you talk about the mercies of God. As, as Paul thinks about how Jesus has loved him and from where he has taken him, isn't it fitting to worship and adore and praise? If you want to worship intensely, then look at the gospel or the good news about Jesus intensely. Fervent worship has its origin and source in the truth about Jesus Christ. We need to be careful not to uh, equate emotional experiences with worship. Now, don't get me wrong. Worship can include powerful emotional stirrings. That's right and that's good. But you can go to a concert and be very emotionally stirred by the music, and that's not necessarily worship. Just enjoyed a good tune, which is fine. It's not the same thing as worship. Worship begins when faith sees God for who he is, sees Jesus for who he is by faith. And when our minds are illuminated by the truth of the gospel, then our hearts, our affections are set ablaze by that truth and we respond with passionate worship. But truth, and specifically the truth about Jesus, is at the core, 
of fervent, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying worship. Our first response to the grace of God in Jesus should be adoration, worship. We're a worshiping community. It's strange when you think about other communities. Like, well, what's one thing that defines our community? We gather week after week to do what? To adore. What are you doing this weekend? Adoring. Right? You may not say it that way, but that's what you're doing, right? You're gathering with God's people. We together are looking at Jesus, and we are praising him for the mercy that he's shown to us. Appropriate response is worship. But there's a second response, and we see it in verse 18 through 20. Uh, this is where Paul comes back to what he said to Timothy in verse three. So in verse three, Paul says to Timothy, hey, stay at Ephesus and command or charge certain persons to stop teaching error. We wanna protect the gospel, tell these people to knock it off. And then in verse 18, having mentioned that in verse three, he comes back to the charge, right? Same thing, same charge. So up to 18, you could say verses eight through 17 are somewhat parenthetical. Paul is indirectly uh, correcting you know, some of the misconceptions that these false teachers had. But now he comes back to his main charge to Timothy. He says, this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So remember, correct false teachers. I entrust that to you in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. The idea here seems to be that God, through certain uh, people in the church, prophets in the church, singled out Timothy as a leader in ministry, as a pastor of sorts. And perhaps there, a biblical analogy is uh, Acts 13.2. In this context, we have Paul, Barnabas, other elders, prophets uh, in the church at Antioch. And in the context of worshiping the Lord, we're told... While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit, through, uh, through prophets, uh, through those who are gifted in this way in the church, are saying, hey, uh, this is the mission that God has for you. And so something similar may be in view here. Paul will then again refer to this later in the letter when he says, 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that you have which was given to you by prophecy the council of elders laid their hands on you. And the idea here is, look, I, I'm, you're going to have to do some difficult work, Timothy. You're going to have to challenge false teachers. It's going to be difficult, emotionally draining. It's going to be hard. So keep in mind the calling that God has given to you. Remember, uh, remember the prophecies that by them you may wage the good warfare. One of the basic things that encourages you when you're in the trenches, is you know God has called you to this, right? This is his will. This is what he's made me for. It's hard, but it's his will that I face it. And so the idea here seems to be, Timothy, find encouragement in the fact that you were singled out for this work, engage in this war spiritual warfare, and you do this also by holding on to faith, by continuing to trust in Jesus and walking in obedience and maintaining a good conscience. And then Paul gives a negative example. He says, look at those who haven't done that, who have rejected faith and good conscience, like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They've made shipwreck of their faith. They've come to spiritual ruin. And then Paul says, but I have time to talk about this, um, that I've given them over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. But the basic idea is that they're under church discipline. The thought is similar to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says to the Corinthians, this person who calls themselves a Christian but is living in sexual immorality, they are refusing to repent. You need to exclude them from the church. Give them up to Satan, not so that they would be destroyed, 
but that through their affliction, they would come to their senses and repent. So the goal is the restoration of these individuals, but they are put under church discipline that they might repent. The thrust then of this section is, Timothy, you have a responsibility before God. You need to contend for the truth. It's the good news about Jesus that saves and transforms people, and if we lose that, we lose everything. So you've got to contend against error, you've got to fight distortions of the gospel, and make sure that the truth is preserved. And as we saw last week, this is the church's responsibility in every era. We, we never take the gospel for granted. It's our life. This news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, is how God saves us and how he remakes us according to his image. So we always want to be careful about distortions of the gospel, challenges to it. We also just want to be careful of taking it for granted. Now we know about Jesus and his death and resurrection. Let's talk about the really interesting stuff, which is what? I don't know. Fill in the blank. We're called to worship God in response to the good news of Jesus, but we're also called to contend for the truth of the gospel. Again, that good news doesn't just convert us. After we're converted, it's our life. It's the thing that strengthens us and builds us up. And so we want to make sure that we, we are holding on to the truth. We worship in response to it and contend for it. So in this short section of the letter, Paul has told us a great deal. He has lifted Christ up by saying, look at his power to transform even the most hardened sinner into an obedient son and daughter. Look at his power to save. Have confidence in him as you pray for people. But then also look at his patience. He didn't wipe out this persecutor and blasphemer. He waited and he waited until he brought Paul to faith. If there's hope for Paul, there's hope for you. And our response to that is adoration and a commitment to keeping Christ and his work central in our lives as individuals and as a congregation. May God help us to do that more and more. Amen. Let's pray together.